life stages and God, just different things that life tends to throw at us. Um, God, but you're still right there with us and you've given us a community that we can worship you with, um, a community that can, um, that serves to glorify your name, God, and one that just allows us to be able um, to worship you fully and as your bride. God, I ask that as Kevin comes and brings a scripture about um, Nehemiah and teaches us, God, that it would be your words through Kevin's mouth, God, that um, that you would speak to each of us in a new and unique way, um, God, that we would leave here knowing that we've encountered you because we've encountered each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, before you guys have a seat, welcome. I'm glad you're here. So I've actually asked Seth to come up and read uh, Nehemiah 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn. In the reverence of God's word, we're going to stay standing. And we'll read chapter 2, uh, or we'll listen as Seth reads chapter 2, and then we'll, uh, we'll get right into our time tonight. It's right there. Wow. I can tell it's just for me. <laughs> nice. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, uh, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your eyes, then send to me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the providence beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the king for the king's forest, that, I may, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave to them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with the officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose through the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but one on the which I rode. I went out by night by the valley of the gate of the dragon spring into the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up to the night, up in the night in the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. Or I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. How Jerusalem lies with its ruins, with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. 
and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Well, welcome. I'm glad you're here. My name is Kevin. I'm not Matt. My beard's not nearly as cool as his. But I do have this giant bottle of Evian water that a friend of mine got me that I need for tonight. <laughs> I seriously woke up this morning and my throat was like not hurting, but my voice was going. So uh, I don't know what's going on with that, but I am happy to be here with you tonight. My name is Kevin and uh, I hail from South Carolina originally. I now live in Southeast Portland, so south of you guys. And Matt and I and uh, his family, my family, we moved here about the same time, so roughly two and a half years ago, a little over two years ago, I moved here. We started a church in the southeast part of the city called Eastbridge Church, and that's where we are now. And, uh, and Matt and Andrea began Sojourn. And so I'm happy to be here with you, and, uh, and I'm really excited to see Sojourn the, you, the family, grow. Uh, it's really neat to have journeyed uh, along these past two-plus years with Matt and his family and just be able to walk through the difficulties together and celebrate through the good times together and enjoy the city of Portland together. So how many people in here are from Portland? Anybody? All right. My illustration is going to work perfectly. All right. So... And uh, I'm an old guy, so in 1999, I don't even know if y'all were alive then, but in 1999, I graduated high school, and then I went off to college in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and my sophomore year of college, I had an opportunity to go and serve in uh, this city called Orlando, Florida. You probably have heard of it. And uh, I served in Orlando with this group called Student Leadership University, and what we did is I was basically an intern right, for this guy, this famous speaker, and I would go with him, and I would do all the sound stuff, and I would make sure that all the students had their packets they needed, and whenever Jay would not show up on time, which he frequently didn't because he was flying in from somewhere else, I would get up and fill in for him, like, like stall, I mean, not, not like teach his stuff, but I would stall. That's not a fun space to be in, right? You're like stalling, you're thinking of things to say, you're telling jokes, nobody's laughing, you're kind of stone-faced like you are tonight, and I'm just wondering what's going on. And then Jay would walk in and be like, thank goodness. Okay, everybody welcome Jay, and then Jay would come up, and, and he would talk. But during that time, uh, whenever we first arrived for the internship, uh, I realized quickly that I was out of place. Right? So I'm from South Carolina, this tiny little town uh, that nobody knows of called St. George. And I'm not even really from there. I'm actually from this community outside of St. George that's affectionately called Cowtail. South Carolina. That gives you a little peek into how country and redneck I am, okay? So here I am, this like college student from Cowtail, South Carolina, that's no bigger than like this room, you know? There's like a couple families that live there because they can't get out. And so I'm from Cowtail, 
and I'm driving my white pickup truck that has back-off mud flaps on it to go do my internship in Orlando, Florida. So little country boy meet big city, right? You get the idea. And I pull, uh, as I'm driving, I'm meeting other interns along the way, and we're now carpooling, right? So there's a, a car in front, and I'm riding in the back, and I have a friend, Caleb, who's also going to be an intern with, uh, with me. And we're driving, and the car in front of us, uh, no one gets hurt, but they actually get into a wreck. And so then we had this situation to figure out of, okay, how are we going to get to our internship on time with this wreck happening? And we were in, like, Jacksonville at that time. And so we still had a little ways to go to get to Orlando. And so we decided that we would leave their car there at the, the place where the tow truck took it. And all of us, right, five of us, would cram into my three-seat white pickup truck with the back-off mud flaps, right? It was like crazy redneck. And so we come pulling in to this place that we're going to be staying at. And all I had was an address, right? I didn't know exactly where we'd be staying. But we pull in, and we're in this five-star resort and out walks this bellhop with like white gloves on and this tuxedo to gather our bags which by the way there's no room in my truck for anybody's luggage because there's five people in a three-person truck and so guess where the luggage was in the bed of the truck and it was raining so guess what does anybody in here a redneck anybody know what you do with luggage in the back of a truck so it doesn't get wet well that's one option the, the better option, the more redneck version, is you stop and you find some trash bags, and then you individually wrap each piece of luggage in a trash bag, right? And so we pull up, this bellhop walks out with white gloves on and this tuxedo, and I'm in the back of the truck chunking luggage out like I'm bailing hay, you know, like just pieces of luggage are flying, it's in plastic bags, the guy looks at me like I've lost my mind, and in that moment I realize I don't belong here right? This is really awkward. This is weird. I'm little country boy, Kevin, serving in the city, Orlando, which is obviously way fancier than Caltail, right? Well, that is where Nehemiah finds himself uh, in our story tonight, right? Nehemiah was, was an Israelite, right? He was from the city of Jerusalem. And uh, as history would recount, uh, the city of Jerusalem was overtaken, right? The, the enemy had come in, had broken down the walls, taken over the city, and removed the people from there. And now Nehemiah, with a whole group of other people, find themselves in exile. Right? They're, they're living under this king that Seth read about, who is not their king. He's the Assyrian king. He's the enemy king. And they're living in this place, and, and Nehemiah finds himself as a, a cupbearer to the king which basically the cupbearer was the person who would take the drink to the king, but he had an important job that he would do. He actually would take the drink, and then he would try it, right, before he handed it to the king, just in case someone had poisoned it to kill the king. And so the cupbearer is literally this guy who's willing to put his life on the line for the king so the king could not be killed through having poison put in the cup. That's not what Nehemiah desired to do. That's not what he, what he woke up and, and wanted to do. That's not what he went to college thinking, man, I'm going to get a degree and being cupbearer, you know, for this enemy king. But that's where he finds himself. In this uh, evening, that's where we find ourselves in our, our story, is that Nehemiah, he is this guy working for this king that, that isn't his, and he cannot get out of his mind the, the pictures and the thoughts of his hometown that he's left. 
that he's been drug out of, right? He finds himself in the situation where he is out of place, but he is actually doing really well, right? He is serving the king really well. He's caring for the king in ways that, that some of us maybe even would struggle to do, right? He is giving it all that he's got. And as a result, he's actually being shown some favor by the king, and we're going to see that tonight. And so in this scene, right, Nehemiah is like a good movie scene, right? So he, he, it's set with Nehemiah, the, the Israeli exile, entering the courts of the Persian king, bringing him a drink, and the, the king notices when Nehemiah arrives that he's sad, right? And it's not, it's not normal. Nehemiah is out of the, the ordinary, Right? The king actually recognizes that. If you look in verse 1, it says that now this had not been, uh, now I had not been sad in his presence before, Nehemiah says. And so the king asked Nehemiah this question, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? And then it gets tense, right? Nehemiah is getting these questions from the king, and if you're serving the king and you don't answer him correctly, man, that could be like, big trouble for you, especially someone like the cupbearer who's, who's like positioned in the court of the king himself. And so the king is asking, why is your face sad seeing that you're not sick? The king's the provider for the people. To be sad in his presence could mean that you're dissatisfied with his leadership. It could mean even worse that you're maybe disloyal to him, right? And any of those things could spell su- sudden death or imprisonment for anybody who would come into the courts and not please the king. And so here Nehemiah finds himself in the situation where it's tense, he's anxious, right? Nehemiah is being called out and his response indicates the seriousness of the question. If you look at verse 2, it says, the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And the response, Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Right? Literally, his life is now kind of hanging in the balance. What he says next could matter for all of eternity with himself. And so he's anxious. He's nervous. What's going to happen? How is the king going to respond? Maybe is the more important question. Not necessarily is what, what is Nehemiah going to say, but how is the king going to respond to it? Will he view Nehemiah as the disloyal servant? Right? It's actually been about four months since Nehemiah has learned about his hometown, Jerusalem, and the destruction that has taken place and how, how bad of a state it's in, the wall being torn down. He's prayed, he's fasted for this time, and he comes to the king for the first time to present this information to him. But this is not the first time Nehemiah has thought about it. Right? Nehemiah has had time to go to God, to prepare himself, to pray, to ask for God's guidance, He's had time to consider what the king might say and what's going to be on the line when he actually goes into his presence. And this is not the first time that Nehemiah has entered into the presence of the king with the knowledge of what's happened in his city. And so up until this point, he undoubtedly has not been sad before. And so Nehemiah is allowing himself to feel these emotions for his hometown that he hasn't allowed himself to feel prior to this visit. So Nehemiah, in many ways, is showing us that he's innocent but also really wise, right? So, as he does this response, we're going to see this kind of unfold, this conversation between him and the king. Before we do that, 
I just want to ask you a question to kind of get us thinking in the right direction tonight. So we see with Nehemiah that uh, his response is he says, Why should not my face be sad? He said in verse 3, When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Like, why shouldn't I be sad? Whenever the king asks him, why are you sad? And his response is, why shouldn't I be sad? So tonight, I'm, I think, in the second part of your series, For the City. So in thinking about being for the city of Portland, let me ask you a question, right? Are you sad for our city? Have you wept for Portland? Have you petitioned God for your city? Not a single one of us are from here. But we've all decided to live here for some reason. The king responds favorably to Nehemiah. Right? So he, he begins to ask these questions to him. Now, you need to know... Sometimes bad hermeneutics leads to, to bad practices out of Scripture, right? So we're not going to read this and say, oh, the way that God responded to Nehemiah is guaranteed to be the way God's going to respond to us in regard to Portland, right? So this is a historical figure, a true city, an actual occurrence that happened in the Old Testament. Nehemiah with Jerusalem, the city being burned down, the Assyrian king, God had promised that Israel was going to be taken care of. He had promised Nehemiah that there was going to be a time when the city could be rebuilt. He has never made that promise, to my knowledge, about Portland, Oregon, right? But to be sure, right, there are things that we can still take out of Nehemiah. Right? This, is, this is good reading of Scripture. We can take the description of Nehemiah and use it as a prescription for our life. Right, so what are some things that we can find in Nehemiah that would apply to us today as we live in Portland, Oregon in 2019? Right? I think there are four truths that you must know. If we're asking the question, kind of going along the, the theme of for the city, right? I think we could say that Nehemiah definitely loved his city. He loved serving even where he was. He served the king well, but he loved Jerusalem. So if we're going to be for our city, for the city of Portland, there are four truths that I think we must know in order to love our city well. So we find these actually in our passage tonight. Truth number one, we see that the Lord is sovereign and works even through powerful rulers to bring about his plans. Let me say that again. Truth number one. The Lord is sovereign and works even through powerful rulers to bring about his plans. In Nehemiah verse 1, Nehemiah has been placed in the king's courts. Right? Don't pass that up. Right? Nehemiah, an exile, an Israeli guy, has been placed in the courts of an Assyrian king to serve the king. We see similar stories with people like Joseph. If you know your Old Testament, Joseph was a, a guy in Genesis who was placed in the courts of Pharaoh, the Egyptian king. Right? He was actually thrown in prison first and then kind of rose through the ranks and became this, the like, right-hand man of Pharaoh. 
And we see that God used that to bring about provision for his people, right? In Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 and verse 6, it says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? And then the second question that the king asked is, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So it's, it's tempting sometimes, maybe, for us to think that our city is beyond hope. If you've lived here for any amount of time, it's easy to ride down the right street and see an overwhelming number of homeless people and wonder, how am I going to solve that epidemic? It's really easy for us to remember that almost half of our city cares nothing about spiritual things and, and even more than that probably care anything about Christianity. It's really easy for us to focus too much on our own shortcomings, right? To say, say like, man, what can I do? I mean, I'm just Kevin, like little country boy, redneck guy from Caltel, South Carolina, right? Maybe you have that same conversation in, in your bathroom mirror. Like, like, what can I do? Really, like, how am I going to actually do anything for this city? Or, or it's really easy to think that those in power and in leadership are steering things away from godliness. Right? You look at our government, you look at the people that rule over our land and over our city, and you wonder, like, oh, man, like, this is never going to happen. Right? We're never going to be able to tell people about the good riches of God and the life that he wants to offer. Those things are all, like, true facts. We do have a homeless problem that, that we need to figure out how to solve. Right? And we do have leaders that, that would want to push further away from godliness. And we do have people in our city who are very much apathetic towards anything spiritual or Christian-wise. And every one of you are really broken and weak and have nothing to offer a God who built the universe simply by speaking it into being. Those things are all true. But don't forget that he is sovereign. God is powerful. He doesn't need you to be powerful. He's already all powerful. Right? The psalmist reminds us of this, actually, in Psalm 21, verse 1. If you're into memorizing scripture, you should memorize this one. Psalm 21, 1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Whoa. That's a powerful God. Right? The king's heart, right? Like the person that, the, the, think of the most powerful, most important person that you can think of in the world right now. It might be the president of the United States. It might be Lillard. <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. Y'all are dead tonight. Goodness. Wow. It might be somebody else. I don't know. You know, somebody really famous, somebody powerful. In Psalms, the, the psalmist writes and says, that person is like a stream of water in the, in the hand of our God. Right? My kids love going over to a park that we have in, uh, in our neighborhood. And in it, it has a water feature, and you can pump the, the water, and it runs down. And it starts out kind of concrete, and then it turns into sand. Right? And what's cool about it is the kids can actually dig and create canals and turn the canals to make the water flow however they want to. And I see that and I think about Psalm 21.1. It's like the, the king's heart is like that sand in the hand of God. 
Like God just moves them wherever he wants them to go. So remember that, right? As, as we're thinking about our city and being for Portland, remember truth number one, the Lord is sovereign and works even through powerful leaders, even in spite of powerful leaders to bring about his plans. Here's a, a thought for you, a question for you. Are you trusting in God's good and sovereign plan? Do you believe that the gospel is sufficient for you? Is the gospel sufficient when you're struggling in your courses at school? Is the gospel sufficient when you get the news that your mom or your dad has a terminal illness? Is the gospel sufficient when you're struggling in your marriage? Is the gospel sufficient in your relationship with your brother or your sister? Is the gospel sufficient for you to live out the life that God's called you to live here in your city? The sovereignty of God is a vital truth that we must remember if we're going to make any steps forward for the city of Portland. If we're not resting in in this deep, convicting knowledge of God being good and powerful, then there's no way we're going to take bold steps for him in this world. And Nehemiah is given a chance to answer the king, and his opportunity to trust in God continues to grow. He now must put before the king all the work that he's done. So the king asks these questions. He says uh, with them, uh, if it, uh, so he said, if it pleases the king, if I have favor in your sight, that, that, I might, that you might send me to Judah. So the king has, has asked him, what are you requesting? Nehemiah, what are you asking of me? And Nehemiah begins to give answers that obviously are not just coming up in his brain. He has prepared this speech. He has studied the land. He knows his city. He understands its needs. Truth number two is this, and we're going to see this in the following passage. Truth number two, that you need to know, right in the core of who you are, if you're going to be for the city of Portland, is that God uses those who are prepared and ready to accomplish his work. God uses those people who are prepared and ready to accomplish his work. You look in, in the Proverbs, and it talks a lot about people being sluggish, and lazy, and it's always talked about as being foolishness. And then it talks a lot about people being wise and rising and working and preparing, and it always talks about those people being wise. Always those people are the ones who would, who would signify godliness. Truth number two, God uses those who are prepared and ready to accomplish his work. Nehemiah had planned for this moment. He knew what would need to be had in order to accomplish the task that God had put on his heart. This was not a let go and let God moment, right? This was a trust God and diligently work on his behalf moment. 
trusting that truth number one was and is always going to remain true. That God is sovereign, that God is good, that he does work. So look at Nehemiah's answers to the king. So the king asks the questions, right? Nehemiah then uh, takes time to pray one more time because he's standing in front of the king who could take his life. So he prays to God and then he speaks out. He says, one send me to Judah, right? The, Jerusalem was in the, the area of Judah. Two, give me letters to be given for the governors of the province beyond the river. So these areas were, were no doubt places that had probably even encouraged the Assyrian king to stop rebuilding Jerusalem in the past. And Nehemiah is recognizing that and saying, look, I need letters to go to these people that's like a letter from you, king, saying, I have permission to go into this land and do this work. Nehemiah's thought through all this. He knows the people that he's about to run into. Third, he says, give me a letter for Asaph, who is the keeper of the king's forest. Right? So the king would have this guy who would oversee the forest so that as he needed buildings or wanted things built, the timber would be harvested. They would bring it in and would build it for the king. And Nehemiah says, I need you to give me a letter so that I can go to your man and require of him to give me all the wood that I need to rebuild the parts of the city that I love. He knew what he needed the timber for, how much he needed, when he needed it. God provided a way and a means for Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem and to begin the work of rebuilding the city wall. Nehemiah was prepared. He knew what needed to happen. He understood the climate, the situation surrounding him. So let me ask you, as you think about this truth number two, that God uses those who are prepared and ready to accomplish his work. Let me ask you, are you prepared to love your city? Hey, now, you may be saying, how many are college students in here? Do I have like the whole back row there? You may be saying, dude, I didn't sign up for this. I just came to get like a degree. I don't care anything about Portland. I just like that they offered whatever major. You're here, right? You should love this city. You should care deeply for this city. You have a, a space in your life right now that you'll never get again, right? Most of you, are you any freshmen? What are we, sophomore, junior, senior, sophomore, junior? So you, you've got another year, two years, where you get to live here in a, a space that you're never going to have again, freedoms that you're never going to experience again, right? Trust me, I know, I'm married with four kids, once you have that, you don't go back to being able to just like go and do whatever bachelor stuff you, you do before, right? You don't have the, the freedom to go and, and live the way that you live now. I love my family. I wouldn't go back to where you are now. But I'm saying use it for what you have, right? Recognize the position that you're in, the freedom that you're You have more energy than I have in my whole body three times over, right? You're young and vibrant. You can take over the world if you want to. But, but are you going to take it? Or are you just going to be another number in the class getting a degree? Right? Are you prepared to love your city? Those of you who aren't college students, do you know your neighbors? How are you going to love someone that's just a, a face in a car? Have you invited them over for a meal? Have you prayed and asked God how to do this? 
How am I going to be for the city? Have you thought that maybe he has the answer? And he's just waiting for you to ask. This, this one is because your pastor's not out and I'm a guest speaker and I get to leave tonight after I ask this question. But have you offered your time, your talent, your resources to build the very thing that God says he loves, the local church? If you want to be for the city, let me tell you one way that is promised in Scripture. That is the church. The church is established and built on the idea that we would hold to the gospel truth and we would extend that love out to everybody around us. But we can't do that if we're hobbling along with only one leg because you're not doing your part as the second leg. We can't do that as a church if you're withholding some talent or treasure or time that, that you're keeping for yourself and you're not freely giving for the body to benefit from. So let me, let me say it really clearly, right? Sojourn Church needs you. God doesn't need you, right? He is perfectly capable of doing everything that he needs on his own. But in his grace and wisdom and kindness, he has built this thing called the local church, and we need each other. You need each other. Sojourn... Like, is that an identity piece of yours? Like, do you view your church as a way to love the city well? So Nehemiah, he begins his journey. He gets the supplies. He gets the note from the king. He gets the permission. He's headed out. I also like it, by the way, that he knows times when he's going to leave and when he's going to be back. He's punctual. He's my type of guy. I like him. He no sooner has started on his way, though, that he runs into problems. Look with me at verses 10 and 19. These guys with weird names show up on the scene. Verse 10 says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of of the people of Israel. And then verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they must have gathered another person to be on their team. When they heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This reveals to us truth number three, and that's this. You will face opposition when you do the work of the Lord. You want a guaranteed way to not have an easy life, decide to be a follower of Jesus. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for those that are weak. Actually, the opposite is true. In Later in the New Testament, uh, one of the uh, apostles, John, in chapter 15 would say this. Jesus is actually... Uh, talking and John records it. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember 
the word that I said to you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. And then in verse, in chapter 16, John's recording, and he says, uh, Jesus is saying, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. Persecution is promised for those that follow Jesus. Tribulation, difficulties are guaranteed for those who follow Christ. It's not an if it will happen, but when. But Jesus' great promise for us in John 16, is take heart, though. Be encouraged. I've overcome the world. Right? All these people, don't forget, right? Like this king, Psalm 21, verse 1, that they are like waters in my hand. I turn their hearts wherever I want them to go. We're not doing this thing like some haphazard way, just praying that there's some God out there that might be able to take care of us. No, as followers of Jesus, we pray confidently knowing that we have a king who has overcome the world. He has defeated Satan, sin, the grave, and he has offered us everything that we need for life and for godliness. So when faced with opposition, it's easy to think that God's maybe abandoned you or to wonder if it's worth it. Right? It's easy when the peer pressure's turned up. It's easy just to go with the crowd. It's not easy to keep standing your ground. So in those times, I would say, first of all, make sure you are following God. Maybe you're just being a, a jerk and you're doing something stupid and you deserve some opposition. But if you are following God, then trust that he is good. And secondly, trust that he loves you, that he cares for you, and that he is powerful. All throughout the Gospels, we see God not stopping difficulties for his people. As a matter of fact, it seems like difficulties multiply when people decide to follow Jesus. He doesn't stop difficulties from happening. Rather, he sends Jesus, the Son of God, to the people. That's why you might have heard the word Messiah before. It's God with us. It's God literally coming and dwelling with the people. Jesus doesn't, doesn't stop the problems. He enters the problem with us. And he gives us the strength to overcome. So make no mistake, Satan loves places where darkness resides. He loves cities like Portland where there are clear strongholds and places where light has not broken in yet. But Satan is also a defeated foe. Right? His days are numbered. It's promised. He's already been taken over. Which leads to a question for us. Have you hidden God's word in your heart to combat the attacks of the evil one? Is that my son singing really well? My goodness. Let me say that question again. Matt's never going to invite us back again. <laughs> Have you hidden God's word in your heart to combat the attacks of the evil one? Notice what I didn't say. Notice I didn't ask, have you strengthened yourself enough to overcome 
the attacks. Notice I haven't said, do you have enough people around you to overcome the attacks? Because if we're fighting on our own strength, we're going to lose every time. There will be persecution. There will be times where we're tempted to be pulled away from the truth that God has already laid out for us to do. The specific things that he's told us to do to love our city. But have you hidden God's word in your heart, the truth of Scripture, right, to combat the evil one? Nehemiah in uh, verse 20 says this, Then I replied to them, listen to Nehemiah's response whenever these guys are jeering at him, as the text says. Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. Right? He had nothing to prove to these people. <laughs> he didn't have to tell them, I've got letters from the king. I've got wood from the the forest. I've got these guys on my side. Here's my horse and the other animals that the king gave. None of that. None of that was most important to him. The most important thing was this. The God of heaven will make us prosper. So Sanballat and Tobiah, you guys can keep on throwing stuff at me if you want to. You can say all the things you want to say, but God's got this. He's moving and I'm on his side. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. Listen to the confidence that he has. Not a single time did he say, I've built a wall before. Look at these blueprints. You know, look at my portfolio and all the work I've done. He says, God will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise, and we will build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. When we think of Portland as being our city, we can pray bold prayers like that. Prayers that say, God, I know, according to your scripture, that you desire that no one should perish. That you desire that your love, that your gospel go forward in power, and that your light push back the darkness. And so I am praying on your behalf, God, for your glory and your good. Would you move in the city of Portland and would you not let a single person stand in the way? Would you use me as your servant to work for you, to move for you, to be bold for you? And then truth number four is this. It's a little bit kind of stated all through the text. And then there are a couple of verses that specifically spell it out in the New Testament. But truth number four is this. As you go, Nehemiah clearly understood this in this last response to those guys. Truth number four is this. God is with you, and he will not leave you if you are a true child of his. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have God himself with you. The creator of the universe. The one who scripture says holds all things together by the power of his word. He literally speaks and things happen. Right? At, at Eastbridge, we're going through a series looking at in the book of Mark. And one of the most amazing and well-known miracles that Jesus performs is with the disciples when he's on the Sea of Galilee and this crazy storm comes up. Do you know it? 
Have you heard the story before? So this wild storm happens. These are sailors. These are like fishermen. These guys know the waters. They understand storms. They, they know how to handle themselves. But this storm is so big and so terrifying that it, even the disciples are scared. And they wake Jesus up. He's sleeping in the boat, right? It's crazy. He's sleeping in the boat. They wake him up, and they're scared out of their minds. They're, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing, is what the text says. And Jesus stands up, and he says, peace, be still. And in an instant, the hurricane stops. The typhoon is no more. And it's written in a way that it, it even tells us, like, not only did the rain stop, but the sea turned into like a sea of glass. Like, there wasn't even a ripple in the water. And this is all simply from, a, from Jesus just saying, peace, be still. Three words in our language. And this entire sea and hurricane stopped and leaned in as, as it's, you know, if a sea has an ear, a storm has an ear, but it leaned in to hear what its master was going to say next. Right? You want us to be still? You've got it. That God is the one who is with you and will be with you wherever you go. In Matthew 28, Jesus is giving kind of his last words to his disciples before he leaves to go back to heaven. He's already been uh, killed. He's already been crucified, put in the grave, raised back from the grave, defeated death itself. And he's about to go back to heaven. And he says in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus speaking, saying, I am always with you. And then Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul is writing, and he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, right? Keep on listing. None of that stuff will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, sojourn, as we close, and I, I ask you to trust in the good, sovereign God. To trust in His prepared plan for your life. To trust that He is for this city. He is for His word going forward. He is very much for churches like yours caring for a city like this. And He promises that he is going to be the one who goes before you, who prepares the way, who allows you to serve, who gives opportunity for you to work. But in order for you to have any of that, you've got to trust in him. You've got to put your faith in him. You've got to prepare yourself and be ready for when he moves, that you move with him. You've got to be willing to know that you're going to face persecution. And it's not going to be easy. Right? But when you do, know also that if you're hiding the word of God in your heart, if you're memorizing it and, and holding it to yourself, that he's going to use that to help fight off any fears that you might have. And that he will be with you always. At all times.
So as we close out tonight, as we think about our, our city and our, our space, I want to also bring it like really personal. Not just for sojourn a church, but also for you individually. Are you trusting in Jesus? Have you put your faith in God? Your hope in Him? Are you depending upon His finished work on the cross? If you haven't, tonight is the time when you can, you can do that. You can say, God, I, I want to trust you. Maybe you've heard of him before. Maybe you've read the Bible before, but you've never trusted in him as your Savior. You've never taken the time to say, Jesus, I want to follow you, not just hear about you. Tonight's the night when you can do that. Or maybe you've never heard of him. Maybe it was the first time you've ever stepped foot in church. I'm glad you're here if that's you. Maybe you've never heard of words like gospel and sovereign, and you've never really even understood how God works. But tonight, possibly, God used this in a way to open up your mind to see how he is good. And he does love. He does desire that you know him. And tonight would be your opportunity to know God personally to enter into a relationship with him. As we close out, we're going to go into a time of response. And if you've been a part of Sojourn before, you know how this works. Uh, if not, uh, it's very simple. Right? So we're going to enter into a time of, of just space where you can make this your own. And you can, you can deal with this however you need to. If you want to pray, right, you can pray. Talk to, prayer is simply talking to God. You can talk to him in the, in the stillness of your own heart. You can come and ask me to pray with you. I would love to do that. Be happy to do that. I'm a safe person because I'm going to leave from here and you're not going to have to see me, right? You can come talk with me. I'd love to pray with you. There's also a way to respond through song. Mandy's going to be playing in just a little bit. And you can be encouraged to stand and sing and make the, the words of the song your words. To sing them as truth that you declare. Another way is that there's the table in the bag, communion. There's bread and wine. These two elements Jesus actually took on the night that he was betrayed, the night that, that he was going to be taken captive as a prisoner and put to death on the cross. And he took this meal with his disciples, and he, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this represents my body, this bread which is broken for you. And then after the the supper, he took the cup and he, he held it up and he said, this is the blood of my body, the, the blood of the new covenant. And as you drink it, remember me. Think about what I've done for you, how my body was broken for you and how my blood was poured out for you. And the Bible would talk about that, that being so important that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So it's important that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out. And so we take these elements as a, a symbol, recognizing that, yes, we do follow him. And yes, we do remember him. As a church, we want to declare those promises that we find in Scripture. And so the table is open for you to take as you're ready. So I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, I think Matt's words are sojourn. The time is yours. Use it, use it as you will, right? Space is yours. So let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much. For Nehemiah, thank you for the promises found in, 
in this passage that, God, you are sovereign, that you, you sovereignly placed Nehemiah in the, the courts of an Assyrian king, 